Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're talking the mid-century German author Hans Falada. I will get into the feeling of reading a Hans Falada novel in a second. Once I start, I may not be able to stop. But for now, let's just go over the basics. Today's book, Little Man, What Now?, is one of his earliest literary works, and it was a massive breakthrough for him, a mixed blessing for this author who seems, at least to me, to be a person of extremes. More on that soon, too. For now, once again, let's add the name of the translator, Susan Bennett, the fact that we're reading the first ever uncut translation, which sounds, frankly, a little gross, and that the novel was published in 1932, and in this English version in 1996. Roll. I came to Hans Falada, which, when I put it that way, sounds a little more physical than intended, via his widely lauded English-language renaissance, Every Man Dies Alone, or as it was called in the UK, Alone in Berlin. I distinctly remember the first paragraph of that novel. It follows the movements of a postwoman on the way to delivering a fateful letter to the Quangle family of Berlin. And what I recall about it is the puissant sense of tension. Yes, I said puissant. Deal with it. I was, reading those lines, figuratively sweating buckets and possibly literally shaking. Yes, the time, 1941, the place, Berlin. You know it's not going to be good no matter what happens, but I've read much that's been set in that time and place that didn't douse me in fear in those first pages. The postwoman has a sense of what's in the envelope she has to deliver, and it's eating into her. Eating into her, eating into us. Falada has a way of making you empathize to the point of helplessness with his characters, and because his characters come from the highest and lowest places in the social and moral spectrum, reading Falada is a dramatic, exhilarating, anxiety-filled experience. So it was throughout the amazing Every Man Dies Alone, one of my favorite books, period, full stop, and so I thought it would be in every subsequent Falada novel. Reading his first book, A Small Circus, proved this thrill ride wasn't a given. A Small Circus was a rare case of a brilliant translator doing what seemed like a rush job with the text, although it could of course have been the original that had been the rush job. Having said that, Every Man Dies Alone was famously drafted in just two weeks, and Hoffman, Michael Hoffman, the translator, did a brilliant job with that one. So, with regards to A Small Circus, there's no obvious conclusion to be made. With the exception of just one brutally effective chapter, A Small Circus read like a book that was on the edge of something amazing, but never took that necessary step, whatever it might have been, to get there. With this tally of one amazing and one disappointing, I nonetheless bought every other Falada book I could find. Novels, short stories, not the biography, I'm not there yet. Then decided to proceed chronologically. It seemed to me impossible that the author of Every Man Dies Alone could produce two subpar works, and seeing as I had already read the one, I thought it was in the clear. This is how I started Little Man What Now? And immediately, in those first lines of the novel, I got that familiar sensation, the anxiety, that extreme empathy that Falada's characters instantly generate. 
The story begins with a simple enough description of the protagonist, Pinneberg, waiting for his girlfriend, Lamshin, which means little lamb. But for some reason, I'm already shitting myself. Why? What disaster lurks just around the corner? Five past four, and Pinneberg and Lamshin had agreed to meet at quarter two. Pinneberg had put away his watch and was staring earnestly at a nameplate on the entrance to number 24. He read, Dr. Sesame, gynecologist, consulting hours 9 to 12 and 4 to 6. Exactly, and it's 5 past 4. Now if I light another cigarette, Lamption's going to come round the corner for certain, so I won't. It's going to cost enough today as it is. The money. The tardy in two senses of the word. Girlfriend. The visit to the doctor, even if his name is Dr. Sesame. The steam is coming out of my ears. Is Pinneberg, this person about whom I barely know a thing, going to be okay? The short answer, and you knew it already? No. Lamshin is pregnant, and Pinneberg's solution is to propose marriage to her. One fire is put out, another is sparked. Lamshin, being pregnant, cannot continue working as she used to, which means Pinneberg needs to improve his own tenuous employment status, which means going to his boss and asking for more, in the middle of the German, in fact worldwide, depression. Were I not myself recently involved in a labor dispute at the university where I work, I perhaps would not have had the same sympathy or even interest in Pinneberg's situation. But I was, and I did. Simply put, the situation is as follows. Pinneberg works in a small shop where he nominally belongs to a union, but that union does not grant him much in terms of benefits. For instance, he is not paid overtime, as his future father-in-law, a devoted member of the local Communist Party, points out. Because Pinneberg gets little help from his weak union, he decides to try to make a side deal with the boss, but his boss is a step ahead. The boss announces to his three employees that he's going to keep two, but he says he's not yet decided which two. Faced with this ultimatum, Pinneberg switches tack and appeals to the solidarity among workers. We can't let the boss do this to us, he says, except it's too late. The game of musical chairs that the boss proposes has everyone looking out for himself. So while each worker makes vague gestures at the promise of solidarity, they're all preparing to knife one another in the back. And it's Pinneberg, almost inevitably it seems, who loses his job. The concern over money, mentioned in the first lines of the book, is amplified. Amplified and amplifying. Here, for example, are the recently engaged Pinneberg and Lamshin trying to figure out if they can manage on his monthly income, specifically whether they can afford a rented room of their own. Lamshin, let's reckon with 180 to start with. If it's more, so much the better, but let's work with what we're sure of. All right, she agreed. So first, the deductions. Yes, he said. You can't change those. Taxes six marks, and unemployment insurance two marks seventy. Employees insurance four marks. Public health scheme five marks forty. Union dues four marks fifty. You can do without that union. Pinneberg said with some impatience, "Oh, lay off! I've had enough of that from your father." All right, said Lamshin. That makes twenty-two marks sixty deductions. You don't need any fares, do you? I don't, thank goodness. So we're left with 157 basic. What would the rent be? I don't know, actually. A room and a kitchen furnished must be 40 marks. Let's say 45. 
was Lamshin's opinion. That leaves 112 marks 40. What do you think we need for food? What would you say? Mother always says she needs 1 mark 50 a day for each of us. That's 90 marks a month, he said. Then there'll be 22 marks 40 left over, she said. They looked at each other. And it doesn't leave us anything for heat, said Lamshin swiftly, or gas, or light, or postage. There's nothing for clothes, or linen, or shoes, and you have to buy your own cutlery sometimes. It'd be nice to go to the cinema once in a while and go on an outing on Sundays. I do like to have the odd cigarette, too. And we want to save something. At least 20 marks a month. 30. But how? Let's add it up again. In this discussion, every foreseeable expense is accounted for, meaning there's no room for error, accident, incident, in other words, life. Pinneberg and Lamshin go through the rigmarole again when they move into a house outside town. How many pans can they buy? How many casserole dishes? What will be left for heat? Food. What if we skimp on the potatoes for the stew and use three instead of four? Anyone who has lived like this, even for a short period of time, is marked by it even if they move beyond it. In the case of Pinneberg and Lamshin, you know there's not going to be any moving beyond. After all, Lamshin is pregnant, and the shrimp, as the baby-to-be is called, is just going to cost more money. Pinneberg and Lamshin can go over the numbers again and again, but it's just more debt, and no one is lending. Even what appears, at first, to be a break leads Pinneberg and Lamshin down a worse path. After moving into their own rented room, Pinneberg loses his job and Lamshin cannot make ends meet as an occasional seamstress. Her bosses exploit her and every so often refuse to pay her. Pinneberg has to go harass them for money, and even though he gets the fennigs that are owed, no one feels much better about it. So it seemed like a stroke of luck when Pinneberg's mother writes Lamshin to say she's got her son a job in the men's suits area of a department store in Berlin. A job at a time when there are none. Pinneberg is suspicious. There's a reason he has been estranged from his mother for years. She's a leech, and that's just the beginning of it. But the young couple are out of options, so they're off to Berlin. The trouble starts immediately. When Mrs. Pinneberg meets Pinneberg and Lamshin at the station, she has her son pick up the tab for the taxi. When they get back to her flat, they quickly find that she wants them to contribute to rent. At nights, it turns out, she runs a medium-end brothel out of her living room. And as for that job at the department store, that was more wishful thinking than solid promise. Here she is, confronting the matter with one of her regular Johns, a man named Yachman, who, in Mrs. Pinneberg's telling, was meant to get young Pinneberg the job. What are you talking about, Yachman? Mrs. Pinneberg piped up from the background. First, you start flirting. Then you claim I never told you about my son. Not only did I tell you about my son, but you personally fixed him up with a job in Mandel's to start on the 1st of October, which is tomorrow. Typical. I certainly did not, grinned Yachman. I never find jobs for people with times as they are. It only comes to grief. Oh God, what a man, exclaimed Mrs. Pinneberg. You said it was all sewn up and I was to send for him. You've got it wrong. It's all in your mind. I may have spoken about it as a possibility. I do have a vague memory of something like that, 
but you certainly never mentioned a son. It's son. I never heard you speak the word. Well. Yachman does pull through in the end, but the job, while a relief from temporary unemployment, brings its own stresses, as Pinneberg's new bosses are as exploitive as his previous bosses, hiring at great expense an efficiency expert named Spanfus, whose mandate is to squeeze everything possible out of the underpaid staff. In December, Mr. Spanfus, Mandel's new organizer, had been merely looking around. In January, he got going. The sales quota for every salesman in gentleman's outfitting was set at 20 times his monthly wage. Mr. Spanfus gave an elegant little speech. The arrangement was solely in the interests of the employees. Everyone now had the mathematical certainty that he was being judged by his worth alone. Flattery, creeping to the bosses, all those things so destructive to the morale of a business will be no more, cried Mr. Spanfus. Give me your sales pad, and I'll know what sort of man you are. Give me your sales pad, and I'll know what kind of man you are. Lovely. How is a person, as a person and not a sales pad, supposed to pass through this time intact? With the shrimp's arrival imminent, Pinneberg is hanging by a thread, yes, that was a pun, selling suits. He's subject to psychological abuse at work, where his co-workers and bosses prey on his fears, and is forced to muffle it at home as he watches his delicate lambshin maneuver through the dangerous apartment they've been forced to rent, having left his mother's brothel at a certain point. Pinneberg does have friends and allies, Yachman, who got him the job, and Heilbutt, an old hand at work. But the tenuousness of his situation is always apparent, as are visions of what might come next, should he lose his job and insurance. These visions are reinforced every day he crosses the park on his way home. Masses of people were there, clothed in grey and sallow-faced. Unemployed people waiting for something, they didn't themselves know what. They were just standing around without any plans. It was equally unpleasant at home, so why shouldn't they stand around? There was no sense in going home now, since they always ended up there anyway, however reluctantly, and there was plenty of time for that. This was a relatively picturesque description of the state of the unemployed. We're talking about a time when Berlin families lived in huts, huts in the middle of one of the greatest cities, and Pinneberg knows it. It's his dogged resistance to this inevitability that makes the book powerful. He goes to bed thinking about how many marks he has to sell the next day to meet his quota, how much he needs to bring in for Lamption and the shrimp, how much he can save if he walks both ways to file an insurance claim or make a hospital visit. We're back to Fennigs and Marks, just like at the beginning of the book, but the stakes have been ratcheted higher and higher. The scene where Pinneberg snaps is one of the most wrenching in the novel, and this brings me to the matter of how Falada generates this enormous power. I'd say the reader responds more profoundly to a Falada character than to most, because this author thinks and feels more for his characters than do other authors. And I know, I can't really say this in terms of the intention, but I can measure it in terms of the result. Those powerful characters with whom you empathize immediately are everywhere. Whether it's the seedy obstetrician Dr. Sesame, the proud co-worker Heilbutt, the supercilious efficiency expert Spanfus, the long-suffering Lamption. In fact, to reduce each of these individuals to specific characteristics is exactly what Hans Falada does not do. 
every one of them is a four-dimensional person, and Falada seems to have spent an age living their lives before ever writing a single line of their dialogue. He understands and communicates more than any other author I can think of the specific motivations of characters at every point in the spectrum. I'll go back to the amazing Every Man Dies Alone to make this point because it's a book of greater breadth. In that novel, you have petty criminals, small-time Nazis, members of the Gestapo, the elderly, Jews, a movie actor, postal worker, judge, jailer, mother, rebellious youth, and every one of them both acts in a way that satisfies their circumstances and surprises the reader at the same time. That's what makes characters into people. Archetypes who go on to dissolve the mold in which they were created. Whether we like these characters or not, a debate that is entirely besides the point, we think about and feel for them vividly. In a sense, it's right that the author himself uses a pseudonym. He sees himself, a flesh and blood creature, as equal to the made-up names in the made-up stories on his pages. And this is what makes his books among them, Little Man What Now? Great. I thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of the novel The Scapegoat by Sofia Nicolaidu. Burning Books is part of the Litopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to litopia.com, spell the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to Natalie Matheson for playing the part of Bernadette Books. To Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. First word is vitamins. It's vitamins, oh my god. And as always, go Jays.